Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Matt Pieknik, your host, and I am delighted today to welcome Oliver Davis and Tim Dean, co-authors of Hatred of Sex, published by University of Nebraska Press earlier this year. Oliver Davis is a professor of French studies at the University of Warwick and the author of Jacques Ranciere, Age, Rage, and Going Gently, Stories of the Senescent Subject in 20th Century French Writing, and editor of Ranciere Now, as well as the journal Modern and Contemporary France. Tim Dean is the James M. Benson Professor in English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and the author of Unlimited Intimacy, Reflections on the Subculture of Barebacking and Beyond Sexuality. Tim, your work has long been engaged with psychoanalysis, particularly the work of Freud and Lacan, and both of you have written significantly in the areas of queer theory and sexual cultures and practices, all of which form along with the work of Jacques Ranciere, the major foundations for this book, Hatred of Sex. Tim, Oliver, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having us, man. Yes, thank you for having us. Before we start, I want to say that this book seized me in a way that uh, no book has for me since uh, what we've started to call the before times. It touches on something of the zeitgeist, I think, right now, both sexually and politically, that feels very urgent and very unsettling. And it lends some language and organization for me to some of the very disorganizing phenomena that characterize this moment that we're all in right now. Uh, It was being seized this way that excited me very much to do the interview with you. So at New Books and Psychoanalysis, we always begin with the same question. To the extent that it's possible to know What were your conscious motivations for writing Hatred of Sex? Well, Matt, thank you for asking the question. Thank you again for having us on your show. Um, I had both intellectual and personal motivations for wanting to write this book. Intellectually, I wanted to learn about the philosophy of Jacques Ranciere from Oliver, who knows Ranciere's work much better than I do. 
And I wanted to explore whether Rancière's ideas were in some way compatible with psychoanalysis as I understood it. That was my sort of wager going into it. Personally, though, you know, I wanted to deepen my connection with Oliver. I had never done a collaboration at this scale before, and I wanted to see if it would be possible for us to write a whole book together. Um, Psychoanalytically, um, I would say that Oliver and I made a baby without having sex. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in my case, I would say the the motivations were, were overdetermined um a confluence of, of several concerns uh, similarly as, as tim has, has very generously said I, I wanted to to learn from from him and his long experience of, of psychoanalysis and using psychoanalysis in uh, queer sexual cultures particularly um but um i suppose my my kind of intellectual conceptual ethical political motivation was primarily a a sense of frustration that um, despite the gains that have been made by the lesbian and gay liberation movement since the 1970s, and I'm, I'm using those terms advisedly because I think trans liberation is still very much in, in a battle in progress, uh, but despite those gains, it seems that in the last 50 years or so, there's been a, um, a kind of significant proliferation of concepts of risk and danger, and these have come to gravitate around sex in a, in a very problematic uh, way. Uh, governing power has learned to harness fear of, of sexual risk and sexual danger. Um, and a lot of kind of well-intentioned movements, campaigning movements, for example, to eliminate child abuse, to eliminate violence against women. Um, these have had kind of cumulative collective side effects, if you like, that uh, have uh, spilled over into in, into the culture and seem to betoken kind of together a kind of reversion to a sort of uh, uh, primitive sexual puritanism. And um, so it was a sense of frustration at, at that kind of that sort of backsliding, if you like, or that kind of paradoxical movement. And, and, and for me, that was something that um, so that there is an edited volume by David Halpern and Trevor Hopp, um, The War on Sex, which Duke published in, in uh, 2017 and, and many of the contributors there particularly the criminologists I think uh, take take issue with some of those some of the kind of phenomena that uh, that I've just mentioned but I think it seemed it seemed to me and I, and I suppose it seemed to us that there were there was a lot more to say on the matter um, particularly from if you like a kind of uh, um, uh, from a psychoanalytic and from a sort of social and structural perspective that, that perhaps you know that, that volume had less to say about but we thought we could we could say something significant on. As a way of uh, getting into the book, I want to ask about uh, Ranciere. Now, Oliver, you are uh, a scholar on the work of Ranciere, and especially his book, A Hatred of Democracy, from 2005, is a, a central reference point for, for this book. Obviously, they share partial titles, Hatred of Sex and Hatred of Democracy. So for our listeners who are... Uh, maybe unfamiliar with Ranciere's work. Can you tell us just a little bit about his concept of hatred of democracy and and how it relates to this project? Yes, of course, I'll, I'll try to tell you just a little bit because I've spent a lot of time working on, on Ranciere over the, over the years and I've got, uh, got a couple of books on him. So this, this, this one book, um, yeah, obviously the title is, it's a deliberate uh, a reference to, the, to, to, to Ranciere's volume, um, our title. Um, 
Yeah, so the basic point of the book, I suppose, is that democracy since the very beginning, in other words, since its origins in, in ancient Greece, uh, has been bound up with a certain dislike or hatred for its messiness. And that's that's even among those who support it. So even among those who think that democracy is the best form of political regime, there's a kind of hatred, a kind of antipathy, a, a degree of discomfort with um, uh, with, with its kind of messiness. And it's, it's messy in the sense that democratic government, as opposed to other types of government, oligarchy, meritocracy, uh, tyranny, or, you know, and so forth, um, democracy as a, as a regime involves uh, people governing who don't have any particular uh, skills or aptitudes or qualities uh, that mean they should govern. And uh, so they govern, they govern for a period of time, and then governing passes to to others who similarly lack uh, lack skills or particular aptitudes. So, so in other words, there's no identity in democracy. There's no identity of of people who are uh, who are destined to govern. You know, it's government of anyone by anyone and everybody by everybody, if you like. So, uh, in that sense, it it, it dis, it's disruptive of a principle of social orderliness as a regime and that's that 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 in Avancia's account that that goes to explain some of the kind of the hatred the discomfort that people feel uh, about democracy even even as i say those who support it so so we identify in the book then in hatred of sex we identify a a parallel here with sex um so sex uh when it's good uh is disorderly is disordering of of our values our identities particular identities um, our sense of social self-regard, if you like. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's analogous to democracy. I, I say analogous, but in fact, there's a little bit more, it's a little bit more than analogy, there's a little bit more than an analogy or parallel because in, in, the, in the last, the very last chapter, the concluding chapter to the book, uh, where we begin to talk about uh, the, the hatred of democracy in the United States, today, I mean, when I say today, I mean, uh, really since the, the first Trump presidency. Um, uh, so we talk about the storming of the US, the US Capitol and uh, well, the on, still ongoing refusal to to accept the the results of the, uh, the last presidential election. And we look at the way in which that kind of hatred of democracy that all of those movements or uh, manifestations express can be related to the hatred of sex can be attributed to the hatred of sex. And so we look at, in particular, one of the, the sort of structuring fantasies of the QAnon movement, this idea that there is a kind of cult, this completely lurid, outlandish notion, that there is a kind of cult of predatory paedophiles in government, uh, in the establishment, and that, that Donald J. Trump has somehow been sent to, to kind of purge the world of this. Uh, and so it's, it's a kind of lurid fantasy, but it is a, it is a kind of core structuring fantasy of this of this significant movement on the on the right and out and outright. So there we see we see that as coming from hatred of sex, in the sense that um, the kind of the figure of the paedophile in the U.S rose to prominence, particularly in the 1990s, the predatory paedophiles. So in, in anti-sexual predator legislation that was enacted in the, the early 1990s in a, in a great kind of spirit of sort of elated cross-party consensus, um, which brought in some of the most draconian legislation uh, really ever enacted. So legislation that actually um, that actually created new provisions of administrative law as opposed to kind of juridical law to, to deal with a particular type of 
uh, criminal. And, and, and so what, what, what that moment really uh, attuned everyone to, I think, in the US was the idea that in order to protect vulnerable children, it was possible to suspend ordinary politics and to suspend the law. And um, that is precisely, precisely what, how, how kind of that, that leads into the QAnon fantasy and, uh, the, you know, the kind of anti-democratic, the hatred of democracy that's, that's you know, still, still very much uh, alive uh, in, 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 the, in the US and, and elsewhere today. This analogical connection uh, between hatred of sex and hatred of democracy is very interesting. I mean, you describe uh, this hatred of democracy as being constitutive of democracy since, you know, since its origins in ancient Greece. Um, and likewise, that there's uh, the same feature to our relationship to sex, to sexuality. There's a constitutive hatred of it. Uh, it's built in. Uh, and so it seems as though it's not going anywhere. Uh, Help me understand that better. Why, why, it's a constitutive hatred that uh, it can't go away. What about for people who are very into, very into sex and, and very you know, sex loving and sex positive? Well, Matt, we include those people in our critique. That is, we, we aspire to, um, you could say we're being universalist or you could say we're being, we're being inclusive in the way that we are encouraged to be inclusive in our culture today. That is, we're talking about sex and hatred rather than the standard pairing of sex and love. I think what's constitutive about this, as you as you take that term from our book, is that um, sex, sexual pleasure, has a propensity that is inbuilt to it to unbind psychic structures, to disrupt psychic structures such as the ego. And therefore, there is something about our egos, even when we love sex, we also hate it because there is an antithetical structure to the ego and the unbinding force of sexuality. The ego is, of course, psychoanalytically understood as a bound structure. Um, and, you know, the, the point that I would add to what Oliver has just said about the um, sexual predator legislation of the 1990s is that it was um, profoundly anti-psychoanalytic in its refusal to think about childhood sexuality, infantile sexuality, as Freud talked about it. And I think Oliver is right to gesture to that 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 collection of essays, The War on Sex, but that book is itself notable for what, it's like six, 700 pages, and he never mentions Freud, he never mentions uh, psychoanalysis. That is to say, um, part of the problem with that legislation was its refusal, refusal to understand sexuality psychoanalytically. And part of the reaction to it is the refusal to understand sexuality psychoanalytically. And I think it's something to do with the fact of the infantile, what Freud called the infantile efflorescence of sexuality in childhood that makes it overwhelming to the structures of the ego. That is, we talk about sexual intensity, we talk about sexual excess, we talk about what's extreme in sexuality, 
psychoanalytically, that is what sexuality is. Uh, it's not that it's uh, usually normative and mild, it's that it's by definition uh, excessive. And it's that that is very hard to like and be comfortable with in a consistent way. Now, as I was uh, reading this book and thinking about uh, the ways in which uh, our dislike for sex uh, can can easily, as the book traces, uh, cause us to find ways to you know, drop it out of discourse or, or move into other directions. Um, I wondered about, well, when I sort of coming up in my own training as an analyst uh, and as a you know, scholar researcher, uh, the discourse around uh, sex and sexuality and psychoanalysis seemed kind of built in together. Uh, when, when I think about queer theory uh, and psychoanalysis together, I think um, that you know, sex and its excessiveness and what's interesting about that, it's, it's efflorescence, it's, it's built in, it's part of it. You can't think one without the other. Um, but the book is tracing a number of ways in which uh, sex and sexuality have kind of dropped out of discourse. Um, and I'm wondering about that. I mean, from your perspective, what happened to this disordering aspect of sexuality in the discourse around sex? It found expression in the work of uh, Laplanche uh, very significantly, Leo Bersani as well, uh, and both of them get significant uh uh, attention in this book, um, but was it left out along the way? Uh, has it never really been included to begin with? Uh, is it subject to what Laplanche, uh, what you refer to in the book as just going astray? Uh, where has it gone? Where did it go? Matt, I think that question gets to the heart of the problem. And you know, La, even Laplanche, Laplanche argues that even in Freud's own thinking, the capacity of sex to unbind and disorder gets forgotten, gets forgotten, I'm sorry, gets forgotten, um, even by Freud himself, as he develops a theory of narcissism. So we have a situation in which the culture's deep suspicion of sex, the reversion to something like Puritanism, as Oliver referred to it, works in concert with any individual ego's tendency to forget that which is mostly unconscious, that which is unbound and particularly unbinding. So there's, there is, in the sense that we're describing something that is constitutive, we're also, in talking about the forgetting of it, the losing of it, talking about something that is to some degree inevitable, right? Um, and so what we're trying to do is bring that back into to the light and to show that even discourses, uh, the university discourse of queer theory has been um, kind of complicit in the forgetting of sex in the name of various kinds of identities. Or one would say, another answer to your question is to say that what happened was identity. <laughs> what happened was people's uh, commitment to identity, um, to understanding themselves in identitarian terms, which also has always seemed to me profoundly unpsychoanalytic. Would it be accurate then to uh, describe the book in part as a, a, 
a psychoanalytically oriented critique of, of, I guess, what we call identity politics now. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it would. And, and I guess I would also add to, to what Tim's just said that, you know, obviously administering power, governing power, uh, likes to think in terms of identity. <laughs> identity is what is, is, is how it administers and organizes us. And it's how corporate power, which is not unrelated to governing power, of course, sells us stuff. So yeah, um, it is a psychoanalytic critique of, 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 of identity in this, in this, in this sphere. Yeah, absolutely. When we're locatable, uh, then we can be administered, right? When we can be found and plotted on a grid, then we can be sold to, uh, and we can be administered. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. When we can be known and known in all of our facets, and of course, you know, te techniques of kind of algorithmically driven techniques of, um, you know, machinic techniques for for kind of knowing us in these in these ways have, have proliferated in the last fifty years, which which lends a kind of new impetus to that. Uh, to the kind of identitarian uh, uh, side, if you like, and the, makes makes critique of it, deconstruction of it, all the more urgent, I would say. And, and I would just, you know, I would just add, Matt, that I think on the left and in various aspects of various, um, let's say, pockets of queer culture, there is the idea that the way to resist the kinds of the formations of power that we're describing is to invent new subversive resistant identities um, to create one's own identities. And I think that that actually perpetuates the problem rather than solving it. The, the solution to this problem is not through, uh, not through the defiles of identity. It's not it, to proliferate identities is to compound the problem, not to, uh, not to solve anything. So um, I think that political projects to um, political liber liberation projects based on identity um, seem to me extremely limited, if not doomed. I think the project of psychoanalysis, psychotherapy should not be to reinforce people's identities. Um, or to help them discover new identities. I think identity in toto is the problem. Thinking about that um, reminds me of uh, an important idea that comes up in this book, thinking about the idea, you know, what you said, Tim, that uh, it shouldn't be a way of inventing new subversive identities or better identities uh, that uh, is going to get us somewhere or get us, you know, somewhere better. Um, that might not be helpful at all uh, and probably isn't. Um, there's this idea in the book, uh, you know, likewise that uh, sex, uh, given our hatred for it, it isn't something nonetheless that should be uh, redeemed or or made or made lovable. Uh, Something about its ugliness, its messiness, uh, shouldn't shouldn't be recuperated. That comes through strongly in the book. It shouldn't be recuperated. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Why would why is it important not to not to redeem it, not to try to I don't know make sex better? You know, I think. Uh... You know, psychoanalytically, redemption is always a form of binding, right? To redeem something is to 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 bind it, to make it acceptable, to make it likable, to make it lovable, to make it palatable, to make it somehow aesthetically acceptable. And I think that 
the impulse to redeem sex, I I understand it. I think it's extremely strong, um, but it is itself a binding impulse. And in binding that which is the force of unbinding, what it get, what it gets rid of is sex itself, right? Um, that is, what is lost in the redemptive act is sex. That is, not sexual acts, not sexual activity, but the capacity of sex to unbind, which is which we talk about in the book in terms of. We sort of appropriate, we adapt the notion of deplorability from Hillary Clinton's um, comment about Trump supporters. And I think what we're interested in there is what do you do with the deplorables? Um, Really, what do we do with the deplorable parts of ourselves? How do we come to terms with them without simply cleaning them up, making them acceptable, um, disciplining them, making them good, um, making them tractable. Um, How do we deal with our own deplorability without simply eliminating it or projecting it onto somebody else? I want to talk, uh, there's a a great many things that are going on in this book. It's a very... uh, it's a very rich text for being very compact. Um, and there are many, to my mind, like wonderful critiques of uh, some of the things we're already talking about, uh, of identity politics and the ways in which identities kind of serve to make us more administrable, um, the ways, the, the, you know, the problematic ways in which uh, trying to bind sex uh, is unhelpful. And you also address um, the limitations of uh, intersectionality, um, which is connected to the identity politics, uh, as well as some of the more um, perhaps malevolent implications of the Me Too movement. I wish that we had time to talk about all of these things, um, but I'm curious, especially about the the latter chapters of the book, uh, where there's uh, where your f- focus turns particularly to attachment theory and to traumatology. Uh, Hatred of sex is very critical of attachment theory, which you refer to at one point as a bureaucratic cancellation of psychoanalysis, which I thought was such a a good way of capturing it. What, in your view, makes attachment theory inimical to psychoanalysis uh, and also to democracy? Thanks, Matt. That's that's a great question. uh, in a way, it's kind of all of chapter three that I kind of need to run through. So I'll try and I'll try and do that um, succinctly. Um, so so Bowlby's attachment theory, John Bowlby's attachment theory that that, that he developed in in the mid twentieth century alongside uh, Mary Salter Ainsworth um, forms the the bedrock really of of dominant ways today of understanding child psychological development um, across the board really. Um, but perhaps, perhaps not in sort of some sort of psychoanalytic corners. But it, I think, it is socially and culturally uh, dominant in a way that perhaps psychoanalytic accounts aren't, uh, at least uh, aren't in most places any longer. Um, and so it's the bedrock also of, of of the kind of traumatology that that Judith Herman and others in particular have, have pioneered. So, so uh, but attachment theory actually, um, we find is. A extremely deterministic uh, and also a totalizing uh, theory. So uh, it, it, it finds in the child's early attachment relationship with, well, what is usually called the primary caregiver, but is, in, is invariably the mother, uh, the, 
the defining template for for the adult personality um and 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 while within attachment therapy therapy itself can do some sort of remedial work if if you know if 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 things go wrong in that that early formative uh phase um it's kind of really tinkering around the edges and in a very strong sense i think that doesn't doesn't apply uh in in the same way in uh forms of psychoanalysis proper um this is a kind of deterministic theory of of uh of personality development anyway that's just to kind of to contextualize it a little bit so one of the, one of the one of the kind of things that we found looking at the kind of the way in which attachment therapy came about was that um, the idea of security is something that, that Salter Ainsworth, Mary Salter Ainsworth in particular, um, fed into attachment theory. And she kind of took it, adapted it from the work of William Blatz, who was her uh, psychologist, who was her supervisor and also her, her, her mentor, uh, who had this notion of kind of human security in, in his work. But, but what, one of the things that's very interesting that happens when when uh, when Ainsworth and Salter Ainsworth and Bowlby uh, take on this idea of security from Blatz is that instead of so in Blatz, you know, it, which seems to be quite a sensible perspective, um, Blatz understood human beings as being able to be secure in certain areas of their life and very insecure in other areas of their life. Um, but but what happens for when, when in attachment theory is security becomes something that you either have or you don't. So it's a kind of total, total defining characteristic of, of, of the person. And it's from here we get we get notions of uh, uh, you know, the, the colloquial talk of a bit somebody being very insecure. You know, this this kind of comes from from attachment theory, really. Um, so, so in other words, to be securely or insecurely attached or I mean, there are lots of sort of sort of more as it were, precise uh, variants on the on the typologies within attachment theory, but but this is a kind of total personality type for attachment theory. Um, now there are lots of problems with attachment theory. Um, feminists have identified problems with attachment theory long before us, uh, so mothers get blamed basically for most of the suffering in in the world, but according to attachment theory. Um, I mean, not, not explicitly, obviously, but that's the implication. Um, but what one of the things we identified was the the sheer arbitrariness of the principal focus of Bowlby and Salter Ainsworth's empirical work, and, and that of the that, that of the Tavistock Clinic where they were where, where they were based. So they, they chose what they called separation as as the kind of main focus of their empirical work. And so this was this was what happened when when. Uh, infants and children in the, in this sort of sensitive formative years were were separated for various and partly it had to do with wartime evacuations in from from cities in the UK this was part of the kind of impetus for the work but separation of various kinds became for them the kind of the, the sort of the principal cause of of pathology uh in 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 later development but that was a totally arbitrary choice of focus and bowlby if you read bowlby carefully he, he admits to it in the work he says we chose separation because we had to choose something um and separation could be easily observed so separation was chosen for the convenience of getting funding to run these projects to develop this work separation was you know it's like separate separation is in you know it's, it's an incredibly kind of wide general malleable adaptable concept just like attachment actually and this is part of the problem i think with attachment theories it's is it, it sounds so innocuous 
you know, who could who could object to attachment? But actually, part of it's part of the problem with it is it's it's kind of the, the way it can be ubiquitously re redeployed. So so anyway, feminists have a problem with it. Separation is a kind of arbitrary choice um, in in the theory. But in, in terms of relation to psychoanalysis, this is this is this is key, I think, because um, separation was something you could easily easily observe. And Bowlby and Salter Ainsworth, what they like to do is they like to observe rather than listen to the children that they were engaged with. So the sort of, if you like, the aesthetic, the sensory modality of attachment theory is, is observation. It's a surveillant, surveillant visualist modality. It's not, it's not a psychoanalytic modality. It's not anything to do with kind of listening to, to, to somebody talk uh, and express themselves. Um, now, um, uh, yeah. So, so, so that. Sorry, this is quite. It is as you can, as you get. You said it was compact. Our book. It is. It is quite. Uh, it's quite quite imbricated, particularly in this in the, in this chapter. So I'm just trying to pull out some of these threads. So, 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 yeah. In terms of the relationship with psychoanalysis, um, uh, so there is this this surveillance visualist sensory modality which contrasts with the the, the freudian psychoanalytic modality obviously um uh, but also uh, so whereas for freud for for freudian lacanian laplancian and other types of psychoanalysis proper conflict intrapsychic conflict conflict within the psyche uh, is p- just part of the human condition um and you know what therapy is is there for is to kind of help us understand these conflicts and and live them and perhaps tolerate them without without so much suffering but the conflicts kind of don't go away for attachment theory intrapsychic conflict is produced by deficiencies in the caregiving environment uh, in these formats in the formative years so so basically for for the kind of implication of within attachment theory was that if you could re-administer the caregiving environment in other words re-administer a portion of the material social world political world you could kind of eliminate intrapsychic conflict and eliminate suffering and so it's a kind of utopian theory in a way um but and, and let me just let me just interrupt yeah, one yeah. Moment, Oliver just to give you give you a, a moment's break but it's a utopian theory that involves a kind of social engineering that would be all about eliminating the unconscious right it would be as you say about programming families mothers and children so that caregiving happens in the right way and something like something like psychic conflict just disappeared and there's something profoundly it's utopian but it's also profoundly dangerous in that idea of eliminating what is what is part and parcel of subjectivity uh, absolutely and so this and the, 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 in a way there's a kind of implicit ideal of single-mindedness of of of, uh, of single-mindedness and simple-mindedness, if you like, um, it, within attachment theory, and that's that lends it absolutely to projects of uh, administering power in the post-war period. And the Tavistock Clinic, as you know, the work of Peter Miller and Nicholas Rose has has shown very eloquently, was was absolutely to, in, its mission. Really, was to kind of re-engineer uh, British society for that post-war that post-war world. And so, if you have if you have single-minded individuals, you know, who are securely attached. Uh, they can be slotted into the system of administering power quite quite smoothly, 
um, in a way that you know, kind of psych, the, 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 the two-minded, ambivalent, never quite sure where they are individuals that, you know, in a certain reading kind of Freudian psychoanalysis gives us, they're, they're much less governable. <laughs> it's much harder to, 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 to govern them. And, so, I mean, and then if, uh, just, just to bring it back to hatred of sex, finally, for me, then um, attachment theory is what we say about it in chapter three. Um, then... Um, uh, so we, we look, we look at, we kind of look at, we sort of read that you mentioned me too, um, and obviously we, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not, um, we're not against me too, um, but we 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 are um, skeptical about some of the kind of cumulative side effects, if you like, unintended consequences of this, as as with other movements. Uh, and um, so one of the things we were, we were interested in was where this idea of what appropriateness in sexual relating is where, where's it coming from and it's an it's not just something that's it's not just something that's vectored by me too but it, it was vectored i think by me too is vectored by me too but also it's something embedded in a lot to, a lot of kind of consent-based uh, sex ed programs in 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 uh, across campuses and, and in schools uh, um so what we call schools in britain but in educational establishments anyway um uh, uh, so, so where does this idea of appropriateness come from in in, in healthy sexual relatedness? And, and, we, and we, we kind of came to the conclusion it sort of comes from attachment theory, uh, and it comes from attachment theory because attachment theory models adult sexual relationships, romantic relationships, on the relationship between the infant and the primary caregiver. So, in terms of the relationship between uh, the infant and the secure base if you like. Uh, and so what that actually means, what that actually means is that the sort of healthy sexual relatedness on that model is a model of fairly intermittent sex in the context of a marriage-like relationship, an intimate monogamous relationship. Um, and so any other kind of sex, uh, if you like, promiscuous sex, uh, lots of the kinds of sex that that when Gail Rubin developed her wonderful idea of the charmed circle, you know, that lie on the kind of outer reaches of that circle. Um, those kinds of sex are, are viewed with suspicion as, as dangerous. Um, and those who engage in them or suspected of engaging with them are, are more intensively watched and, uh, and police. So, so attachment theory gets the blame for all of that. It's remarkable, and uh, I mean, you underline this uh, both here and in the book, the the kind of militarized language that is built into attachment theory that is uh, is very innocuous on the surface, right? You don't you don't really hear it until you start listening for it, right? But the idea of the secure base um, and you know corollary to that, the idea that the the world out there uh, is is kind of naturally threatening. Right, harmful. There's there's danger out there, and we have to be protected. Um, it starts to help flesh in, you know, this general feeling I think that we're in, uh, you know, in the United States and elsewhere, uh, that we have to be, we have to be, we have to be on guard at all times. <laughs> the enemy could be coming from everywhere. I think. I mean, I think that comes in in a way. It comes from partly from a kind of the way in which, you know, in the 1970s. Um, government started to measure, it started in the US, started to measure uh, not just um, the experience of being a victim of crime, but the fear of crime. So, and 
um, among ordinary citizens who hadn't been victims of crime. Um, so uh, that allowed something quite inchoate around fear and security, the, the kind of ego's fear of being overcome to enter into political discourse and to become cons- to become a thing within political discourse. And I think that, that in turn led, and I mean, it's not a totally original set of claims, it's something David Garland and other critical criminologists have been saying for, for a long time, but this, this allowed, this allowed um, uh, politicians then to make it quite exorbitant promises of, of security uh, and to try and outbid each other competitively in this, this sort of cycle or spiral. And I think, to, to my mind, that explains kind of rightwards drift in our political systems much better than a lot of the other accounts for, for that, uh, that movement do. Um, so, so just to say that I think, yeah, that, um, you know, we're, we're very accustomed to thinking about security as as a good as a good thing. I think I think reading Bowlby and reading, you know, reading the way in which you know his experiences, um, you know, as an officer in the Second World War, you know, there's, there are some really really military examples in, uh, uh, you know, in his in his great uh, trilogy, his big trilogy, um, that, that uh, you know that that, that that really really point to the kind of militarism that attachment theory wired into. Uh, its own set of uh, beliefs and then into into the wider culture. And I, I think that just to add to what Oliver is saying, I think that those, those militarized metaphors and the push, the increasing, the intensifying push towards security and securitize, securitization absolutely goes along with a psychoanalytic critique of the ego as a fortified structure, as a structure that works through defenses, right, that is known by its defense mechanisms, that is, its its very structure and the way it operates is entirely compatible with a militaristic view of the world. Uh it's interesting just you know listening and thinking about uh the fear of danger out there you know that has emerged in the political discourse and you know what you're talking about politicians who seize on this so much i mean as literally up to this minute earlier today i was reading the headlines about the midterms here next week and how it's become the you know overarching concern of voters apparently uh you know the possibility of of crime um that we're most preoccupied with right now. It's very effective. So there's a lot to say about attachment theory. At the same time, attachment theory, uh, your critique of attachment theory um, forms the the foundation, the base, (laughs) as it were, um, for a larger critique that you start to make in the next chapter of the book, uh, which is about uh, traumatology or what I might... uh, call in 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 my day-to-day like trauma-focused care um trauma-focused therapies but traumatology and uh the the movement that the book traces you describe the ways in which uh traumatology kind of takes the uh already most problematic aspects of uh attachment theory as you see them and uh radicalizes them and and weaponizes them uh traumatology really emerges as a a kind of uh, well when you when you start to say weapon as a really almost like (laughs) dangerous there's there's an element of danger uh to to uh traumatology that we 
are, are not so aware of. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, to, to just give you one example of that. I mean, I suppose this this the, the sort of the one dimensional ideal of of single mindedness in attachment theory. You know, so the idea that there is no if there's intrapsychic conflict, it's the fault of the, the caregiving environment. So in in trauma focused in in the kind of traumatology, um, you know, obviously we read trauma and recovery among among other works in the book. Um, uh so 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 there so things like multiple personality disorder you know alters and fragmentation that the kind of fragmentation that is theorized to be a result of a, a result of prototypically uh child sexual abuse but also other kinds of sexual trauma so that that that, that is very 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 clearly a kind of radicalization of the of the position with attachment theory that sees that sees intrapsychic conflict as uh products of the deficiency in the early caregiving environment and just and just to like you know get at the get at what you're asking about matt from a different a slightly different angle um the way that we are trying to describe sexuality psychoanalytically as something as a force of unbinding following laplanche as something that therefore disrupts or violates the ego can make can make the intensity of sexual pleasure seem traumatic in itself, right? That is to say, um, one could even go so far as to say that the, the better the sex, the more intense the sex, the more likely it is to be traumatic in some way. And I think that what we're trying to do is disarticulate that phenomenon from the discourse of sexual abuse right that is if i'm overwhelmed if i'm overwhelmed even traumatized by my own pleasure that doesn't mean that i'm being abused or assaulted by somebody else and i think that it can be very very difficult especially for young people to come to terms with their distinction which i think is a i think is a psychoanalytic distinction but it's to say that um sex the intensity of sexual pleasure can be harmful to my ego to my own defenses but that doesn't mean that somebody else is harming me um and it's a, it's a tricky distinction to make but i think it's a crucial one for the for the politics that we're trying to advocate and intervene in it is a crucial distinction, and it's and it's a distinction that's 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 difficult to make, partly because of the commodification of traumatized identity that that traumatology has kind of um, either not noticed or kind of you know not not critiqued itself. Um, and so 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 the idea that that that, that to to have to kind of curate the identity of, of, of as a victim of trauma, a survivor of trauma, is a way to accrue. Uh, attention uh, in in the marketplace of of social attention and uh, and traumatology has been extremely successful in in curating traumatized identity and uh, this this leads people to think that they have been traumatized in situations where you know they might just have had uh, very good sex or they might just have had a kind of unusual experience uh, not in a kind of proper sense, a kind of traumatic experience. So, I think there's a kind of there's a dynamic within traumatology itself that has 
that has made that that distinction that we we want to insist on harder to harder to draw right and i i i think i think that's exactly right and i would just i just want to give a shout out to our colleague and friend Avi Sakadapulo, whose book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, will be out shortly, and I'm sure you will try to get her on your podcast, Matt. Um, but she's making an argument there about um, uh, via Laplanche, about trauma, about sexuality, about consent, and trying to develop a concept of traumatophilia to combat this idea that... Um, to combat exactly what we are talking about in other terms. It sounds like uh, it's interesting with, with a trauma coalescing and being commodified into an identity. I mean, trauma is, uh, it seems to have a sort of like, uh, like a halo around it. It's untouchable. Right. And once you can identify as having uh, a trauma or a traumatized identity, uh, there's license for uh, kind of specialized forms of recognition um, and uh, treatment, uh, as well as even this idea in terms of treatment from a a clinical perspective that some of the uh, maybe like otherwise um, ethical boundaries might uh, might be more elastic. Right? There's an idea, you know, that we should really be uh, very forthcoming in informing people about their trauma if they have had a trauma, a traumatic experience, or if the clinician suspects that they might. Um, there, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Which All is off. Yeah, which, 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 when the clinician gets it right, you know, is okay, more or less. Um, well, we, you know, one might take exception to it on other on other kind of therapeutic grounds, but you know, when they get it right, it's okay. But there is there is throughout trauma and recovery, there is a kind of repeated uh, exploitation. There's a, there's a suggestion throughout throughout trauma recovery that 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 you know there is likely to be trauma um, in, in sexual trauma, most most especially. In, in case histories, even where then where it's not on the surface, and it's the therapist's job, absolutely, as you say, Matt, to uh, according to that that kind of way of thinking, to to unearth and pinpoint and and actually suggest to the patient that that the analysand that this this is this is part of their experience, and uh, that it, that can be very problematic uh, in, in all sorts of ways. And, and, you know, for for your listeners, Matt, who might be thinking, you know, well, look, they're here, these guys um, just simply minimizing trauma and not understanding what I myself have gone through. I, you know, I want to say that our, our, our goal, our aim is not to minimize trauma, but it's to say the trauma is not and cannot be the explanation for everything. And the way the traumatology has worked in the culture, and the way the popular culture works in our trauma, in our cult, in our culture, is to make trauma the explanation for everything. So that people who never heard of psychoanalysis, they know all about trauma. They can talk about trauma. People who have not been to college can talk about trauma. It's 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 become a kind of go-to idea within the culture, which. Um, is a way of mobilizing resources for oneself. It's a way of um, uh, attaching to an identity, as Oliver describes. It becomes the explanation for everything. And it's a way of saying, 
um, it can be a way of saying it can be it can be used as a way of saying I in fact have no responsibility for what has happened. I myself do not have uh, aggressive or rapacious or appropriative uh, impulses. I am in fact wholly innocent and some somebody who is just done to rather than somebody who does things to other people. Um, and so there's a way in which trauma as a concept is used to avoid responsibility for the 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 impulses we all have, which are the least appealing to our own egos, our own sense of ourselves, right? Trauma is a way of avoiding, claiming to have been traumatized is a way of avoiding one's own deplorability, one's own wish to, um, uh, to fuck and to kill, which let's just say are, you know, understood in Freud right from the beginning as part of what it means to be human, not part of what it means to be a man, part of what it means to be human. Um, And I think we live in a culture that wants us to disavow those impulses, attribute them to other people, people we don't like, social groups we don't like, and and then they run amok because nobody's actually taking responsibility for their own unattractive impulses. Nobody's owning them. I think that distinction that you mark earlier, Tim, is an important one. Uh, it's not that uh, the book aims to uh, you know, diminish or, or set aside the importance of uh, trauma or the experience of people who... Uh, have had you know, very traumatic experiences as much as uh, the critique seems to be aimed at uh, maybe uh, sort of a, a applying some uh, breaks maybe to the emotional momentum, the movement of, of traumatology in our culture and the way in which it has really, uh, you know, as you say, become an explanation for everything, the ease with which that happens and the quickness with which it's possible for us to leap to that now. And within the field of sex as well, you know, there, what, what we what we argue is that there's a, there's a kind of whole domain of, of what we call um, that which is kind of benignly sexually inappropriate, uh, but that is falls short of traumatic or, or abusive, uh, and that's that's a distinction. I mean, that will be a controversial distinction, I think, for a lot of for a lot of people. But what what we what we're saying is that kind of traumatology and the kind of popular cultural uh, fetishization of trauma have led to led to the recoding of all sorts of forms of sort of sexual awkwardness and weirdness that you know decades ago we might have called queer being recoded as traumatic and or traumatogenic and and abusive and that so just 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 sketching that kind of differentiation is is for us an important important move as well and it's and it's obviously it's going to be provocative and it's going to upset some people we understand that and you know in terms of in terms of um queer theory and politics part of what we're seeing is that the appropriate has become the new normal right that is a category that is wielded to discipline and um, um, subjugate and get rid of all the things you don't like um, 
both in yourself and in the people around you, right? By coding things as not appropriate, that's exactly the way that normal um, used to function before the queer critique of normal, which I think was a tremendously important critique and has seems to have sort of fallen away in the resurgence of this new version of the normal, which is, quote unquote, the appropriate Just uh, tracing that, you know, movement from the normal to the appropriate, uh, made me wonder what it, uh, I don't know, what it's like to observe that happening. I mean, uh, time was, you know, during uh, an earlier stage in, in in queer theory, right? The critique of normal was was very was very prevalent. I mean, Michael Warner's book from back then, The Trouble with Normal, was you know probably like the touchstone book for really drawing uh, the problematics of, of norms and normality into the open. <laughs> What's it like? Is it surprising? Is it just to see, um, I don't know, appropriateness kind of supplant and substitute and maybe like deepen the same kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know, hatreds that norms used to sort of help set up in police? There's been a redistribution of repressive energies, is what I'd say. <laughs> Migration and redistribution. Um, let's see, we're going to be closing. In a few minutes, uh, I'm glad that you had mentioned the, the concept of benign uh, benign sexual inappropriateness. It seems like it's an important way of trying to um, kind of broaden the discourse, open up the space for there being... Uh, ways to actually verbalize, speak about, and understand a broader range of sexual experiences, as well as uh, our own conflicted, you know, experiences of those experiences. Um, Before we wrap, uh, there was one question that I wanted to ask. You, you know, point out importantly that where, uh, you know, sex has come to be defined or or understood often as something that is, you know, harmful, dangerous, potentially abusive, that has to be uh, guarded against. Um, that sex needs to be redefined in terms of in terms of pleasure. I think this conversation has, in its ways, been about that need. But I'm curious, um, since on 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 the bleaker days, it seems like this period of, of of hatred around sex being so visible is going to be around for some time. Um, even even during the course of time that uh, I was reading this book and preparing this interview, uh, you know, dramatic political legislative changes here in the United States in terms of like Roe v. Wade, which uh, I just thought, oh, here's we're we're on the march, right? This is this is part of it, but. Um, I don't know, are there places in culture or elsewhere where you currently see this redefinition of sex as pleasure happening? Um, you know, I Matt, I will just say I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question in terms of places in culture, uh, but I do think the pleasure is tremendously important, especially pleasure that cannot be harnessed to any economic or political agenda. I think part of the way capitalism works is by um, trying to co-opt and make use of, instrumentalize all of our pleasures to make money. So I think there's, there needs to be, we need to be able to think about, hold on to a place for non, non-utilitarian pleasures, pleasure for its own sake, and 
and also to understand that that kind of pleasure, which is worth cultivating, can still be unstable, right? Can still be dangerous in some way. But what is dangerous too is the fortifications of my own identity, right? To the rigidity of identity. And I think it's 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 too easy to make the mistake of thinking that that pleasure can be harnessed to a political agenda. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it can, um, although this may be a place where Oliver and I um, don't always agree. I mean, I, I suppose I, I suppose sort of in the in the recent in the recent past, certainly in the kind of early years of combination therapy barebacking, you know, something that Tim's worked on a lot would have been a way of um, might might have been a kind of sort of sexual subculture that. Um, um, yeah, that, that there would be um, there would be be hope for the kind of pleasurableness of, of sex kind of overriding its dangerousness and or, or, or the danger of being part of the pleasure. Um, I guess chemsex subcultures in, uh, in in kind of gay male uh, subcultures, particularly also also women involved in chemsex, although it's not always called chemsex. Um, I guess kink and BDSM subcultures are still thriving in a in a way um um there was a there was a very interesting series of four four podcasts um by by some folks at a, a podcast called drunk church that, that that came out uh uh last week i think um uh, listen i listened to them last weekend anyway uh, uh cosmo b concordia and aurora laban and uh you know clearly our book resonated with some of their experiences and they're very involved in it sounds like anyway in those kinds of subcultures so that was that was really heartening to, to hear that, that that it resonated with with their interest in pleasure and pleasure in spite of and alongside danger, if you like. And just and just to kind of like th- you know throw in a little um, plug for for the people of, of Drunk Church, um, I was you know I was sort of intrigued by. Um, these 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 people I do not know and that Oliver does not know, sort of um, doing a series of podcasts on our book, Hatred of Sex, but without reaching out to us, without wanting to interview us, without consulting us as, as ostensible authorities on the book. And I think, in fact, that's a tremendously good sign that they were not interested in us as authorities. They just wanted to do something with the ideas in the book and run with it in their own directions. And I, you know, I really enjoy talking to you, Matt, and I, I'm enjoying this conversation, but I also completely applaud the folks who, who run with this in, what, in whichever direction seems to them most, most, um, most enjoyable. I love that idea that, uh, I mean, the, the book and the ideas in the book are starting to take on a life of their own. Um, and uh, there needn't be the participation of you know, the writers of the book as masters of the, of the discussion uh, in order to continue exploring those ideas and, and deepening them and, and seeing where it is that they're going to go. Absolutely. Well, Oliver and Tim, we're going to have to draw to a close, but uh, this conversation has been has been wonderful, if entirely 
too short. I wish that we could go longer. Um, before we have to end, I'm curious uh, what projects the two of you might be working on now. So I'm writing a book on the politics of psychedelics, on the politics of the psychedelic renaissance. And a part of that is actually looking at the, the idea of uh, psychedelic treatments for, for trauma. I'm working on a range of projects. I feel that none of them is quite as interesting as Oliver's psychedelic project. But at the moment, I'm trying to write uh, a piece about the history of AIDS literature, uh, which I'm calling What Was AIDS Literature, to think about um, putting it, to think about AIDS vis a vis a certain understanding of temporality, which would be a psychoanalytic understanding of temporality. Um, and I'm also writing a piece on um, my own relationship over the last 30 years to, to queer theory and my um, um, cantankerousness, my cantankerous arguments with some of the key figures in queer theory and trying to reassess that. All of these projects sound uh, fascinating. I would look forward to having you on uh, down the road when, when the work around them has been published. Uh, It'll be a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting and us. And thank on. you very Thanks. much for joining me today, both of you. Uh, and I would like to take a moment also to thank our listeners to, for joining in. Uh, until next time. Thank you.